Hey everyone, Cardick here. Um, we haven't done a podcast in a while, but looking forward to bringing the Business Essential Podcast back to you. We have the great Leslie Picker of CNBC kind of walking through how she got to where she is, working with Jim Cramer, David Faber on Squawk on the Street, and then also how she, you know, has become such an icon in the field of journalism. Second, we go through what it's like to be an investor, how you get to you know, learn all the different resources available to you. And so really looking forward to sharing this with you all. Um, want to thank our amazing sponsors, uh, particularly American Express. Don't do business without them. Without further ado, Leslie Picker. Hey, everyone. So coming to you here Wednesday morning, we have a special guest, uh, Leslie Picker of CNBC. You have seen her you know, covering so many different stories as uh, a journalist, but also um, on Squawk on the Street, a very popular show you all know with uh, Jim Cramer, David Faber, um, Carl Cantania. Um, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to have you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, awesome. So I guess first off, how we want to start is um, tell me like how, what was like your story? How did you get to CNBC? Because CNBC is such an iconic company. Um, so many great, you know, memories, people watch it all the time. So many iconic shows and iconic people that come there. How and what really made you want to go um, into financial journalism and whatnot? No, it's a great question. And it wasn't a linear path for me. I remember I grew up in Kansas and I, my dad used to watch CNBC all the time. He's an accountant. And I remember distinctly, I was probably in middle school, maybe early days of high school. He pointed to the TV and said, um, you know, that guy, that guy on the screen right there is more important than the president. He's more, oh, I guess I was, I was younger, uh, more important than Bill Clinton. And I remember thinking, really? It was Alan Greenspan, um, but he was speaking on CNBC or he was speaking in some kind of Fed news conference or whatnot. And that started a conversation with my dad about you know, the power of broadcast, the power of the financial markets, how everything worked. And I, I would love to say that ever since then, I started on a path toward journalism. It wasn't quite that way. I do remember CBC being a constant presence in my childhood. However, I didn't know I wanted to be a journalist. I actually thought I wanted to be on Broadway as an actress. I was really into musical theater growing up and went to college for that my freshman year. Um, got a scholarship and everything. And then after about a year, I decided I didn't really want to do that for my career, that I wanted to keep it more as a hobby and do something else. And so I initially thought I wanted to be a political journalist and I went and did a fellowship in DC that went down that path. And then ultimately it was the, it was kind of auspicious timing because the financial crisis was starting. And so I was in DC, I was covering kind of the early innings of the financial crisis, late 2007, early 2008. And I remember being in the newsroom when Bear Stearns went under and thinking, wow, this is just wild and historic. And I also have no idea what the heck is going on here. And so that kind of started a quest to really understand the plumbing of the financial markets and make it my mission to help explain that to other people as a journalist. That, that's incredible how you wanted to be on Broadway and <laughs> all of a sudden 
you're on CNBC and you know becoming one of these household names that you see on the network. Um, so when you start started around the financial crisis, what what was kind of going through your mind as a journalist, how you wanted to cover that, um, and really how you know times have kind of changed since then in terms of covering finance? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I just remember thinking all of, you know, I was learning so much about business at that time. I had never heard of a hedge fund. If you grow up in Kansas, you're, you're not surrounded by people whose dads work in private equity and hedge funds and asset management. You grow up in people work what I consider to be normal jobs. Um, and so I had never heard of much of the world of finance yet. Everything that was happening during that time was impacting pretty much everyone across the country, especially in the Midwest where I was then living and, and grew up. And so that to me was a calling, hey, if you actually take the time, if you actually study and learn this stuff and become immersed into the, the world of Wall Street, the world of finance, maybe when there are some type of hiccups or, or even a crisis at some point, because they do happen. Yeah. Um, it's not just a one-time thing. It, it happens uh, every decade or two decades or so. Um, then you will be in the position to help inform and hopefully make a difference in a way that, um, you know, you are hoping to do so as a, as a journalist. Yeah. I think, I think it's really fascinating because there's people, people will talk about you know different ways that financial information now is disseminated, whether it's CNBC's a very big bellwether, then now you also have these different um, streams where people get their information from Reddit, they get their information from so many other places. From podcasts. <laughs> from, from, from podcasts that never that never really existed a long time ago. So um, how and now even CNBC covers meme stocks, which I find really fascinating. And so how is kind of Reddit and, you know, really new investors that never had any interest in investing until really, I would say pretty recently, you could even probably go back to when the pandemic started, how, how was that kind of impacted how you decide to cover, cover stories or even, um, or even name stocks and whatnot? You're right. You're right. It, it hasn't been as much of a factor that, uh, you know, we have these social media platforms that showcase different investing ideas and kind of crowdsource uh, different takes on specific stocks, on the markets. It's fascinating. As a journalist, it's amazing to have that kind of transparency because we knew that mom and pop investors, is how they used to call them in the dot-com days. Now it's, it's Redditors or mean stock traders, but individual investors who aren't part of an institutional community how they acted. And we now have so much more transparency around that. Now you asked about reporting and, and the challenges therein. Our job is to report facts. And so it's very important to make sure that when we're reflecting certain comments on Reddit, that it's not just one person's opinion, whereas the vast majority believes something different. We need to make sure that we are checking out what we show our audience on TV and making sure that we're not just looking at this as a monolithic group that believes one thing. We need to make sure that we still include the various nuances that are in there and 
actually, it, just because there's transparency doesn't mean you can be lazy about it. You have to still make sure that you're reading and that you are mirroring and disseminating information that's not harmful to the investors, that you are showing a, a true and fair picture of what type of dialogue and what type of sentiment is taking place on these forums. Is, and, and, as, and as we kind of go down, like, this path where I feel personally as Reddit is only getting more popular and you're starting to see more and more people get into investing. Um, do you kind of feel like um, meme stocks per se and these sorts of trends that we're seeing are only going to continue? I do. I read a stat recently that a majority of investors, of retail investors, are getting their stock trading tips on social media. I don't think you can just put that genie back in the bottle and say, sorry, guys, no more tips on social media. You're on your own now. I, I mean, there is something to be said about this idea that people can share ideas, a free flow of information, help inform their ability to take control over their own finances and hopefully generate some wealth in the process. There's something really amazing about that and the power of being able to do that. And so I think it's only going to accelerate over time. I don't see, unless there are certain regulations put in place, which I'm not sure what the, the validation or the, the impetus behind that would be, I think it's only going to get more and more prevalent and expand to various um, and new forms of social media in the future. I, I, I want to touch on this point here. And so for those of you that didn't know, that don't know, Leslie actually did a Delivering Alpha live stream with um, Mark Rowan of Apollo Global Management. Um, I, I, followed, I followed that and I find it fascinating. A lot of that was covered. For those in the audience that don't know, Leslie, can you kind of talk about and touch on what that was, what, you know, what all goes into that, and then also what Delivering Alpha um, is about? Sure. Thank you. Um, so we recently launched the Delivering Alpha newsletter in early June, and it was kind of a, a baby of mine, uh, months in the works. And one of the things that we wanted to really showcase are these big investors whose focus and whose um, perspective may not fit in you know, a normal five-minute TV slot. So we created this letter to have a chance to really explore and dig deeper into some of these ideas that, again, are a bit more complex, that require a bit more explanation, things in the alternative assets world in particular that aren't just, you know, views on whether the market's going to go up or down, but views on, you know, why they're getting into areas. And this is, you know, Apollo's Mark Rowan in particular, they're making a big bet on insurance, increasing their exposure dramatically to the insurance world. Well, why is that? That's not something that you can necessarily talk about in a, a short amount of time. It takes, uh, you know, a bit of peeling back the layers to really figure out what's going on there in this big transformation that's taking place in the alternative asset space. Same thing with Carlisle. We talked to Q Song Lee, he's the CEO there, uh, asking him really about the succession change that took place. He's a new CEO, been there about a year, um, came in as an outsider and is working on kind of transforming the private equity industry to be bigger and faster and more malleable, which is not something you typically associate with private equity. So again, these longer kind of more in-depth conversations, uh, if you want to subscribe and you're listening, um, you can do so at cbc.com slash delivering alpha newsletter. Uh, that would be great. Yeah, I highly recommend everyone goes and does that because 
as Leslie said, you can't get an accurate depiction in a five minute time slot. You know, when you hear, for instance, an earnings report come out and I know earnings season just came, it's going to come back here for Q3 pretty soon. You see analysts come on the screen for five minutes, let's say, and talk their high level objectives. Um, that you don't really get a full picture. And even when it's not earning season and an analyst or a company comes on to talk about trends in markets, you don't get a full picture because CNBC doesn't have the time to air out 30 to 45 minute, you know, segments and go in depth. But I definitely think for someone that's you know new and interested in learning investing, we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are new in that space. And so, you know, them touching a little bit on the meme stock area and then touching on this is actually perfect because I feel like this sort of thing really gives people um, a chance to really learn and understand how they choose areas to invest in. Yeah, there's something to be said about, you know, more of a magazine style interview format, and it's not necessarily something that people need every single day. But there is a place for it, especially if it's with a compelling guest or someone in the investor world that you don't hear from very often. So when you do hear from them, you want to you wanna really dig in and hear what they have to say. For sure, Leslie. Now, a lot of people that listen to this podcast were very excited that you were coming on because they want to know what it's like to be at CNBC. What is like the day-to-day like? How do you, you know, with Squawk on the Street, a really popular show with Jim and David and now yourself, like how do you... Like, what's the day-to-day like? How How is it like to actually be on the inside of such an iconic brand? It's great. And it's funny because I've worked in a variety of newsrooms and I have friends all over the industry. And CNBC has such a wonderful reputation as being very nice and a good, friendly place to work, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I'm sure people who have seen the dramatized versions of newsrooms, whether it's in the morning show, um, which I just started the second season of, um, or some other shows that have have been airing in the past, the industry doesn't always get the best reputation as being kind of a kind collegial place to work. And I have found that CNBC really is just the opposite of the typical stereotypes where some of my best friends work there. Um, These are people who you know, attended my baby shower and who have just been constant, a constant presence in my life as friends, not just colleagues. And so it's, it's, it's really wonderful on that front. And then of course, with the pandemic, it's been a little challenging because everybody is in disparate places. Some people are working from home. Some people are working from the office. I do more of a hybrid approach. I go in sometimes I work from home. Sometimes I'm in the city sometimes. Um, But you, you miss that in-person um, aspect to the job and, and kind of the creativity that goes with just chatting with your colleagues on a daily basis. That said, um, in terms of my daily life, uh, my daily schedule, it is all over the place. Sometimes like this morning, I was up pretty early. I was up at five for a 6.20 a.m. hit. Um, other times I am working, and this was the case on Monday, I was working until 8 p.m. So it is pretty variable, which is why it is nice to have more of a hybrid approach so that I can um, make sure and, and try to get a little bit of balance, a little family time, and also by working from home and not being in the office for, you know, 16, 17 hours a day like we used to do. Yeah, it must be really tricky, um, especially being on air, having not really like a set schedule having to work at home and then sometimes going in into the city like that can't be easy 
It, it's not, although I will say when you like what you do, it makes it a little easier when that alarm goes off and you're not just like, oh, it's such a slog to get up. No, I never really feel that way. It's a really fun job. And it's just a, exciting to wake up and ask questions for a living and get to share what I've learned from all of that curiosity. I mean, that's, that's at the heart of it, the job. And I, I really can't complain. Um, I think, you know, n- not everyone can obviously relate to that, but there, <laughs> are, there are, I'm sure there have been several interesting stories to come out from when you've covered, you know, different topics and whatnot. What are some of the highlights of your time at CNBC? If you could draw back to a, no, not a, not a lot, just a couple stories. Um, sure. What would you say are the most interesting people or topics that you've covered um, for our audience? It's a great question. Um, so I would say earlier this year, there were two really interesting stories that I have not been as excited about in a very long time. Um, you know, similar stories that I just really, really wanted to sink my teeth into. The first um, in covering hedge funds and everything, of course, the whole bean stop phenomenon. Uh, really fell into my lap as as part of my beat. And there was this just fascinating narrative. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with regard to Reddit, that, you know, you've got on one hand, these individual traders who saw that a hedge fund called Melvin Capital had a bunch of put positions on GameStop, meaning they were betting for that company to fail. They band together, they found a common enemy, and they said, let's squeeze this short position and cause the hedge funds to suffer while only helping our own positions. That was kind of at first what it appeared to be the case. Then of course you, again, goes back to just not letting things be as a a simple version of themselves. You peel back the layers, you realize actually there were individual traders that were short GameStop as well. There were hedge funds that were on the long side that wound up making a killing this year. There's a hedge fund called Senvest that's up something like 76% year to date because they had a pretty sizable GameStop position going into the year. So that was a really interesting aspect of the markets to cover. And I don't think it's over yet. It actually spawned, I think something like seven different book proposals and a bunch of different documentaries. And there's a TV show in the works. And I mean, it's, the characters are amazing. The congressional inquiry that followed is interesting. I think the SEC is obviously still working on a report that kind of digs into what happened there. So that's not over, but really, really interesting and fun to cover. Um, and then there was also the Archegos blow up, which we were getting wind of um, on a Friday afternoon. Um, I think it was in, in March timeframe. And we were seeing just these huge block sales of positions in, in a bunch of Chinese ADRs, in um, a bunch of media companies like Viacom, CBS, which had seen some kind of curious run-ups in recent weeks. It turns out there was this unknown family office that was receiving margin calls from its prime brokers because it was over levered and its positions had gone sideways um, and they were winding down. And that brought up a whole bunch of larger issues related to something called total return swaps, which are these instruments that investors can use to not have to disclose their positions and it helps them build positions. And there are some solid rationale um, explanations for them, but because of the lack of transparency and lack of disclosure, 
there was so much systemic risk that trickled into the different banks that were serving as their counterparties, as their prime brokers. And therefore, these big banks, which are mainly just charged with, you know, making sure their risk is not too high, were taking billions of dollars in losses each. And so that was a really interesting story to follow as well. I, I, I think it's <laughs> fascinating how going back to that first story, how really Roaring Kitty, the user on Reddit, has uh, has made the SEC and movie studios come out and, you know, really write about the entire GameStop phenomenon. And so to go to answer to ask a question, you say that you don't think it's done. Do you do you believe that we're going to see potentially more of these GameStop scenarios because we've seen it with AMC as well. I mean, they all kind of traded together a little bit, but yeah. do you feel like we're kind of in that new age where, you know, people are just going to start banding together in that sort of a thing? Yeah. It's interesting. You ask because uh, Vlad Tenev, who's the CEO of Robinhood, when he was asked about this, um, or this may have actually been in his congressional testimony that he gave. Um, I don't even think it was prompted, but he basically said this was a black swan event. It's like a one in so many percent chance that something like this would happen, meaning that this is an extremely, extremely, extremely rare occurrence. We don't think something like this is going to happen again. And my question would be, well, why not? There's nothing that has changed structurally in the market that would prevent another GameStop. It's not like GameStop was the only company that had a sizable short position that could be squeezed, that you know, had a nice size following of people who were willing to push it higher. Now, what did it take for that to actually happen? I think there were certainly a, a special primordial soup of, of an environment, the contours that made GameStop just this phenomenon in the eyes of, of investors. That said, I don't, there's nothing that's changed in the markets that would prevent something like that from happening again. So I, I do think it's less of a black swan event. I think it is highly likely that we do see something like this, especially as you know the liquidity levers start to get pulled and the Fed starts doing its tapering. And we should, ex we should expect to see more volatility, um, especially among smaller mid cap stocks. Going into, and you bring up an interesting point with the Fed, the Fed has always been really closely or closely tied to a lot of these individual groups, whether it's, you know, the market's going up, whether the market's going down. I know a lot of people, they just wait to hear what Jay Powell has to say because Jay Powell impacts the market either way. Um, you brought up Fed tapering. Do you expect, uh, I guess, rates to increase or in the near future? Because um, that is definitely a headwind, I would say. Yeah, I think that most of the market participants that I speak with, because I'm not paid to manage money, so I'm not, no one wants to hear my crystal ball and where the market's yeah. headed. But um, I think at least in terms of reflecting what I hear from market participants, I think most people believe that the tapering will ultimately come into effect maybe in November uh, later this year. Um, and that is kind of step one. And then any potential rate increase will follow from that point in time. Now, I think the question is, increasing rates is, is usually used as a mechanism to get ahead of any kind of runaway inflation. And we've seen tremendous bouts of inflation this year. Most people also believe that that's a transitory effect, that that's not something that's going to be a permanent fixture 
in our economy. So I think the question is, once you do taper, what does the inflation picture look like? If it is kind of in a two-step process, if it's gone back to being more manageable levels, maybe the Fed has reason to not raise rates. That said, maybe they will be inclined to do so in order to prevent some sort of um, stagflationary environment, which is another thing that people are talking about, um, or trying to get up ahead of some key potential risks with inflation in the future. That's really good insight right there. And I know you're not paid to uh, <laughs> to give financial advice, but um, that's that's really good because a lot of people don't also pay attention to what the Fed has to say. So it's good practice. A couple quick questions I have here because I just did a mailbag um, for you know members and for people of the public to ask a couple questions really quickly. Sure. And so one question is that I've gotten that's pretty common is, if you're new to investing, where would you recommend someone going to get their information from? And really, where should they start that process? CNBC, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I am paid to say that. Obviously, you go to CNBC. No, it's a really, really good question. And I think it's a really important question. And when you, whenever you're getting into something new, the idea of information can be overwhelming. You turn on CNBC or you read the Wall Street Journal or, or other news sources and you see all these words you may not have heard before, and you just have to kind of start from the ground up. Um, I actually, when I first started, I bought a book and there are a bunch of these. So you can go to your local, if Barnes and Noble still exists in your town, you can go there and pick one of these up. But it's basically like finance 101, business 101, markets 101. Mine was the Forbes Guide to Markets. This is, I don't even know if it exists anymore. This was so long ago. But it really goes through all of the terminology, all of the various instruments, Here's how a stock works. Here's how a bond works. Here's what volatility means in the markets, what the VIX is, the volatility index, which is, what, it's not a perfect measure, but it's a measure of price swings. Here's what momentum means. Here's what an IPO is. Here's what a hedge fund is. I mean, it goes through very basic terminology, which I think is the best way to start because once you start learning the lingo and learning the language, then you can have more of a value-added experience when you're watching us on CNBC or when you're reading more. And it just takes time. Um, I would say this is a long game understanding. This is not something that you're going to sit in your room and look at something for an hour and be like, okay, markets, I get it. I know what's going on. I'm going to make a ton of money now. No, it doesn't work that way. It takes a long time. So I would recommend, you know, dipping your toes in that way. Um, and then also chatting with professionals, people who are financial advisors, who, who know much more about how the inner workings are, are structured. And that way you feel like you can kind of over time start becoming more knowledgeable and, and more, ex, I don't want to say experimental, um, but, you know, really putting money yeah. to work and, and start uh, getting involved. Yeah, I would definitely say, as Leslie said, read read as much as possible, and then also watch CNBC. CNBC is what got me into investing. You know, it's gotten a lot of people into investing, and um, there's a lot of value you can get from listening to Leslie, listening to Jim Cramer, listening to people that have been in the business for a really long time. Um, the second biggest question, and it's fitting, and we can kind of end on this, is so if, if you're a young professional that wants to get into covering finance, um, wants to get into that journalism aspect, how would you recommend them starting that process? So 
a really, really great question. And it's interesting because the industry has evolved so much, even since I started back in 2009, it's one of those industries that isn't a clear path. You know, if you want to become an investment banker, you might graduate in economics and then you might do a two-year analyst program in an investment bank. And then you might go to business school and then you might go back to the investment bank. You might go to private equity. It's much more of a clear path. My dad was an accountant, as I mentioned. Same thing. You start off at one level and then you get promoted and then you get promoted again. And then you, you know, spend your career, um, you know, doing debits and credits and things like that. Um, For journalism, it is not linear. It is not um, one of those industries that has a clear path, that has a guaranteed path. That makes it more challenging. It doesn't make it impossible. If I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know that if that's says, an accurate statement right there, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I think one thing that I learned in pursuing this industry is the most important thing is to be curious and to love asking questions. And so if you have that kind of innate curiosity, it doesn't matter what your writing skills look like. It doesn't matter what your SAT scores were, or if you went to a prestigious Ivy League school, how good are you at asking questions? How compelled are you to find the truth? How interested are you in the subject, in financial news, in the markets? That is what's going to drive your ability to succeed in this industry. And so if you have that in tow, I would say the best way to start, there are a ton of places that hire entry-level roles, whether it's as a, um, an entry-level producer at CNBC or an entry-level writer at CNBC.com or a bunch of other business news publications. The internet has exploded in terms of opportunities for people who are willing to get their feet wet by doing write-ups of people who appear on TV. What are some of the news for the aspects they say? write-ups of, of press releases or different um, you know, news-making events that require someone to just write something up. That helps you really get your head around the content and the material. And then from there, you can start doing things that are much more value-add, that are presenting new information to the markets that they can't read in a press release, that they can't hear on an earnings call, that they can't hear anywhere else. And that's always the goal is to provide something that your audience can't get anywhere else. And it's because of you and your sourcing that you're able to provide that. And the more you can do that, the more you can provide these value added types of, of whether it's a written article or a TV um, segment, that's how you're going to progress in the industry. It's not going to be like you've given two years of your time working 20 hour days and weekends. And, you know, now you're going to make it to the next level. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's about your craft, which thank goodness, is very public so people can see the quality of your work and you progress based on that quality. Listen, listen to the expert. (laughs) There's no linear path to get to that point. You just have to really grind and work at your craft. Leslie, where can the audience find your work, um, follow you, all that sort of stuff? Um, Um, So you can follow me. It's just, I'm very boring. Leslie Picker on Twitter, Leslie Picker on Instagram. Um, I don't think there are too many other people in the world with my name. So I kind of claimed those very early. Um, And then on CNBC.com, I have a profile page, which I should know the website off the top of my head, but I will Google it real quickly. It is just CNBC.com slash Leslie dash picker. You can find my profile and then all of my links will be below that. Not all of them, but a selection of links will be below that where you can read, watch, 
get a sense of kind of what I'm doing these days. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Leslie, thank you for your time today. I think you may have inspired the next uh, Leslie Picker <laughs> to come out of the woodwork and get on the TV. So uh, really, really appreciate the time. Really appreciate the insight. This is going to be great content for our listeners that are new in the space to really learn and find out ways to get accurate information and just build their knowledge base. So really appreciate it. Um, know you're super busy. And so look forward to, uh, you know, hearing what all cool articles and topics you're covering next. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm sure, uh, hopefully I've inspired someone to be a better version of Leslie Picker. There's plenty of, <laughs> plenty of room to grow that pie. Oh, only time will tell. Only time will tell. All <laughs> right, Leslie. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.